0: Well, it is, um, it is wonderful to be here with us. Um, we're in the middle of a three-part series. Let me just explain the context uh, for you very quickly. And what I'd love you to do, if at all possible, is to a) get a copy of these study notes, which uh, you were hopefully given on your way in. If you haven't got a copy of the study notes, if you wave your hand, um, Nikki and the steward team will pass them around. So, if you'd like a copy of the study notes, wave your hand. Uh, they're coming round. Uh, from the the back now. So keep your hands high, Nikki will pass them to you. And last week we were looking uh, in the Bible about relationships, about sex, about sexuality, Uh, and contrary to public media opinion, uh, this is not something we talk about a lot in church at all. In fact, in five years, this is the first time that we're picking up on this in Sunday services, but it seems very topical and timely to be doing it with everything Going on in the country today. So, last week we were looking at the beginnings and endings in the Bible and what that says. And the beginnings, if you were here, you may remember that the first command in the Bible is to go and have sex. In fact, have lots of sex until you've filled the earth up with offspring. Now, the Bible is pro sex. God begins uh, by creating all sorts of things and they're good and they're good and they're good and they're good. And then he creates male and female images of God. And when uh, they're together, they together represent God's image. And he says, not that that's good, but that's very, very good. They're naked and they know no shame. That's the beginning. That's Eden. We cannot get back to Eden. Uh, That's not the ambition. That's not the aim of the church. Although for uh, centuries, that's sort of been seen as the aim of the church. Uh, And you say, well, why can't we get back to Eden? Well, let me do an experiment with you. Okay, we're going to get back to Eden today, folks. What I'd like you to do all is uh, unbutton the blouses, the shirts, and we're all going to sit here naked for the rest. So we don't want to do that, do we? we? We don't want to be corporately exposed because we live in a universe post-Eden. We can't get back to Eden. Everything has changed since Eden. We now live in a world post that perfection, post that place. Things have changed. We'll look at why in a minute. Neither are we in eternity. We looked at eternity last week as well. And here's a a lovely picture. uh, Someone's imagined it of heaven. And in heaven, we heard from the words of Jesus in Matthew 22, we will no longer be having sex. We don't need sex anymore. We're not going to be married. We're going to be like the angels. Our spirituality is going to have trumped our sexuality so much that our need for intimacy and ecstasy We'll be utterly fulfilled in who we are in heaven. We won't need to couple off. We will know everyone and be fully known, and we'll be glad that we're there. And if you want to understand that more, listen to last week's talk. But it's not, uh, what do we do with that now? Do we all become monks and nuns now? Well, that would be pretty detrimental to the survival of the human race, wouldn't it? So that's probably not the answer either. And what we're going to be looking at today is not then Eden, where we've come from, or eternity, where we're going, but the mess in the middle. And frankly, if you want a biblical perspective on relationships, on marriage, on sexuality, sensuality, relationships per se, you have to conclude that the biblical perspective is a total and utter mess. I mean, there's only two ways around it. Have you ever tried to read the Bible in a year and you, uh, you pick out the book of Genesis And you get through Genesis and you go, (laughs) your chin hits the floor and you're like, what? These guys can't be role models, can they? Uh, And that is how the Bible pans out again and again, thinking this is just a complete mess. So we're going to explore some of that and some of God's answers today. As we do that, um, let's have a word of prayer together. Father, Some of the things that we're going to talk about today uh, are not things we normally talk about in dinner conversations. We pray for your grace and your peace and your love to be here, that we will all know ourselves deeply loved and cherished by you today. In Jesus' name, amen. So the mess we're in, the mess we're in. I was reading a sociologist um, this week. She'd been teaching a course to students at a university, uh, and they were uh, trying to understand Genesis chapter 3. And without exception, the students' knowledge of Adam and Eve's story was that Adam and Eve had sex and therefore were kicked out of the garden by God. (laughs) That that was what the fool is that God is anti-sex, and because they decided they'd have sex, they were excluded from the garden. You may have picked that up as well. It's in, in various films and, and novels. A sort of sense of that would be the thing. To turn us off. But we know as we actually read the Bible um, that Genesis chapter 1 says, go and have sex. Um, and the, the quote that we had in here, where, where Eve eventually is cursed in, in verse 16, assumes that she's been having lots of sex in the garden and giving birth for many, many years beforehand. It says, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. The assumption, therefore, is that she has had children that have not been painful at all. And in fact, if you read on in Genesis, you discover that there are cities filled with people. The assumption, if, if these were the first two people, is that, that she somehow populated the world. Uh, it's been easy, without trauma, and straightforward. And they've had loads and loads of children. Now, Genesis 3 what's gone wrong is that God has said to people, look, there's one thing you're not allowed to do. One thing you're not allowed to do. And this is the story, not so much of Adam and Eve, or the earth man and the woman, per se, as all of our stories. If I were to say to you today, remember the New Year's resolution that you made on December the 31st this year? (laughs) How many of you, in all honesty, could say, yes, Vicar, I'm going well with that right now? (laughs) If you remember... A child being told something by a parent, I don't want you to touch the biscuits while I'm out. What's the first thing they do? If you put a speed limit on a road and it says 20 miles an hour, annoyingly, (laughs) what speed do you aim to drive at? There's something in the human condition that breaks the rules. Doesn't make the mark, fails to keep the barrier. And Adam and Eve here are just like us. They do exactly what we would do and have done again and again. And having done it, they blame other people, each other, and end up in a complete mess. The results of this in verse 16 is that God says, childbearing is going to be hard, there's going to be pain, and there's going to be a battle between the sexes. It puts it this way, your desire, Eve, will be for your husband. It's a sense of sort of grasping up, trying to pull and hold on to, and he will rule over you. So a grasping manipulation at its worst and an oppressive domination at its worst. That's the, that half of the curse as far as it relates to relationships. It's not the end of the story, but it is an important beginning. Uh, and in the book of Romans, we then have a description of the descent of humankind. It says in Romans chapter 1 that Um, A bit like that amazing hymn that we sometimes sing, Oh Lord my God, when I an awesome wonder, When I wander through the forest glades and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, then sings my soul, my saviour God to thee. It says that in the beginning, when you're surrounded by beautiful nature and creation, maybe you've experienced this on holiday in uh, the glories of Devon or Cornwall or the Algarve or up at Richmond Hill, um, looking at the deer. There's something that just goes staring up at a star at night or a full moon, as we've had this week. and You just go, wow, there is a God. There was an intrinsic, innate understanding of there being a God that we had. But because we didn't worship God, Romans 1 says, he he hands us over to uh, not be able to grasp him as much. And we start to worship created things. To put it another way, we did it our way we sometimes hear at funerals I did it my way sung by Frank Sinatra and when we do it our way um, God has a choice in the beginning it's like God saying here's a marriage relationship between you and me let's just get on together and we say actually no I'm going to have an affair uh, and he has a choice then as, as couples do when something goes terribly wrong in a, in a relationship either you can push them completely away cut off. You can do a sort of trial separation, see if they'll miss you in the hope that they'll get back, or just a a complete reconciliation. And in this instance, God does the trial separation. He pushes humanity away a bit, says, see if you'll miss me. But we didn't miss him. He just said, ah, more freedom. I've got more spare time now. I haven't got God nagging at me anymore. I'm just going to do what I like. And our hearts got hardened and hardened until we just did more and more of what we liked and had less and less understanding that there was a God there and turned further and further away from the truth and what we could see. And we invented ways of doing evil. We despised our parents. We became boastful, became proud. We became arrogant. The whole of humanity ended up in a colossal great big mess. Now, through the Bible story, this is expanded on in numerous ways. And you might think, well, what's God going to do about this if he wants to do something about it? Assuming God wants us to get back. Is it just that he pushes us away? Um, well, actually, no, he, he did various things. The first big intervention is where he says, well, let's start again and see if it works better this time. He sends a rainbow as a sign that he'll never do that one again. He'll never wipe us out again. It didn't work. So then he chooses a particular family to be the focus of extraordinary amounts of his affection and attention. Abraham and Sarah, they become Abraham and Sarah, our covenant parents. And they become a model of wonderful Christian marriage. No, they don't. Abraham twice tries to pass off his wife as his sister so that she can be effectively taken into a harem of a passing king because he feels in danger of his life. He sleeps with her servant to get himself a child. And then has other children after Sarah has passed away as well. Not exactly the the ultimate model of what you'd imagine the pastor of a church to be. He then has a son called Isaac who marries Rebecca, and they are like completely enmity of one another. It's a battle of the sexes writ large. They have two boys, an effeminate boy, and a sort of a, a sort of hairy boy. Uh, and they, they fight for the love of each one of them and separate them out. Uh, Isaac has um, Jacob as one of his sons, the deceiver. He marries uh, two women, uh, has two concubines, has 12 sons and a daughter, favoritizes one of his sons and leaves them in a complete mess as well. And his oldest son ends up sleeping with one of the concubines of his father and gets struck off, disinherited for it. That's just getting you through the first few chapters of Genesis. So when God specifically pours his love and covenant and grace and kindness into a specific family, three or four generations in, they're a total muck-up already. So God intervening and showing his love to people doesn't sort it out. In some ways, it's just getting worse and worse and worse. So next thing, 430 years later, God comes along with his law. And his law um, includes a number of things, but it doesn't solve the problem. For one thing, the law, which is perfect and flawless in some ways, but also is very sort of human and conditional in others, enshrines within it the sense that a female slave is worth half what a male slave is. Now, Practically in the culture, there was probably good reasons for that in terms of agricultural culture. But it's the sort of consolidating that sort of battle of the sexes thing that's a long way from Eden where they were united and whole together. We are no longer in Eden by the time we get to the law. In the law, you could find an attractive prisoner of war. You could bring her home. You could shave her head, trim her nails, and give her new clothes. And then she's yours. One of the ways to get a wife in the Bible. Cain wanders around in the desert to find a Bible. Jacob works 14 years to find a wife. Moses waters his flocks, uh, flocks of his father-in-law, to get a wife. Boaz buys some land, and a woman comes with the title deeds. The Benjamites grabbed some dancing girls at a party and forced them to marry them. David slew 200 warriors and bought his wife by giving his his father-in-law, King Saul, their foreskins. Hosea marries a prostitute and pagan world Xerxes has a beauty contest and simply marries Miss Jerusalem. Another way of gaining a wife in the law is to lay hold of a virgin who's not betrothed to another man and know her which means sleep with her, and afterwards pay her father a sum of money, then she's yours. In other words, you grab a girl and sleep with her. As long as you pay a bit of money to her father, that's it, you're married. These aren't really back to Eden, are they? They're not to eternity either. It's just trying to navigate the mess in the middle. It's not a compelling, wonderful vision of society. It's a flipping mess, and I think we need to be honest about the limitations of the mess indeed the mess is even worse when you read the narrative stories what among Jesus's ancestors there are prostitutes and all sorts of other things that happen Judah as one of his ancestors sleeps with his daughter-in-law Tamar who had disguised herself as a prostitute and David had a famous affair with Bathsheba that led to him killing her husband And Solomon was the second offspring of that union. It's not a pretty picture. And I think we have to be crystal clear and honest about that as we look through it together. But going back to Romans, there's something about this picture that is, I think, incredibly life-giving to us in the mess that we live in, in the middle. I've been in church ministry for 21 years now, 14 years ordained, and in that time I've listened to people tell me about affairs they've had or about to have. I've listened to people who have been through rape and through horrid abuse, childhood abuse and later abuse. I've listened to people who Feel bound by their impulses towards pornography or other impulses that are destructive to them. I've listened to people crying. I've listened to people who want to change their gender. I've listened to people who are just in a mess in all sorts of ways. And I've listened to myself and all the mess that I have in my life as well. And actually, the Bible picture of humanity, I think, is incredibly liberating, isn't it? Because Romans 1 goes into Romans 2, and it says, look, if you're hearing this stuff, this list of things that people have got wrong, do you know that you're in a mess as well? And if you stick a finger out at other people, there are three fingers sticking back at you. And it culminates in Romans three twenty three, where it says, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God we've all sinned none of us make the great and then it moves on to Romans 5 where we'll be in the autumn and it says that when we were still God's enemies Christ died for us very rarely will anyone give their life for someone who's got status or prestige or some reason to give their life for and for someone who's just good It's almost impossible that someone will give their life for them. They won't even know about them. But Christ shows his love for us in this. While we were Christ's enemies, he died for us. The Bible paints this extraordinarily realistic picture and says, with all your pornography, with your affairs, with your struggles, with your temptations, with your mess with your brokenness, with your hurt, with your shame, with your guilt, with all the stuff that you don't want the person sitting next to you now to know the first thing about, God would still come and die for you and love you. And actually, as we'll see next week, he has a way of bringing the stuff that we, we would hide into the light and making it reflect his glory and bringing an incredible freedom through the hurts and pains of our experiences part of the reason the bible is good news is because it's really honest it's really honest it says it like it is it's not a clinton card you know those father's day cards that says you know you're the best thing that ever walked the earth since sliced bread grew legs (laughs) yeah It it doesn't talk to us like that. It talks to us through real people's situations and says, look, they made a complete mess of it. And so do you. I wonder if you've ever lived with shame. I went to a doctor recently. Um, I had some aches and pains. And uh, I won't go into the detail of them. uh, But he wanted to treat me uh, for an STD, a sexually transmitted disease. Um, it was slightly embarrassing because i'd worked out by then that he'd come to our toddler groups here in the church and brought his children along and he knew i was the vicar uh, and i was like i i know me and i know my wife and uh, and uh, i can assure you i'm absolutely convinced uh, this isn't an std um but you're a doctor and i know everyone lies to you all the time i'm a vicar i know exactly what that's like <laughs> um so i'll, I'll, I'll get with give you a treatment. If that's what you want to do um but it's an extraordinarily vulnerable thing, isn't it, to start talking to someone openly and honestly about an intimate and private part of your life. Now, Happy to say, um, a day later the urine test came back and it's all absolutely clear and, and fine. Um, but there, uh, I didn't tell Nick I was doing this bit of the talk. <laughs> uh, I got to the punchline. But that's... That's the world we live in, is a world where we are not in Eden anymore. We feel shame. We feel our nakedness. And we can't get back there, however much models of Christianity down the years have tried to push us back there. Neither can we do heaven on earth just yet, because we've got a job to do here on earth that means we can't all be celibate. Although the Bible prizes celibacy really highly and says if you can be single, be single. It's better for the kingdom of living for eternity. But right now, and this is where I want to leave us today, whatever mess you've been in, whatever you've done, whatever you might feel sad or ashamed about, whatever you might feel exposed about if others knew, there is a lover, a lover, who loves you anyway. There is a father, a father, who loves you anyway. And there is redemption for all of our souls in him. May God bless this word to us and help us to muse through it and work out what he's saying to each of us today. In Jesus' name.